Hi guys, welcome back to Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks. This is the final episode of season one, but have I got a doozy for you. Um, I've only got, got Gabby Bloody Stroud on the podcast. Um, there's a lot of fangirling in this episode. You'll have to excuse me. I did get very excited. Poor Gabby's probably sick of me, um, but I really enjoyed this and I know that you guys are going to love it too. So take a seat, sit back and listen to the very wonderful Gabby Stroud. All right, guys, welcome back to Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks. I have got an absolute gold star for you today. It's Gabby Bloody Stroud, everyone. Gabby, how's it going? Hello. I am very well and very excited to be on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me along. Well, I guarantee that I am way more excited than you could ever be right now. But can you give us, before we start, a bit of an overview for those people who are listening who don't know who you are, a bit of an overview of who you are, where you've come from and what you're what you do now? Sure. So um, it almost feels like it was another lifetime ago. I was once mm-hmm. a very dedicated primary school teacher. It was mm-hmm. all I ever wanted to do. I went straight out of high school into university to study to become a primary school teacher and straight out of um, university I went off, I went to England actually and did my first year of teaching over there and never looked back. You know, I then returned to Australia and I was just loving it. Being a teacher was in my blood. It was everything I ever wanted to be, everything Mm -hmm. I ever wanted to do, and I just loved it so much. And then one day, um, as more and more things kept being imposed on teachers, I just woke up and realised I couldn't do it anymore. So I always Mm -hmm. still loved it right to the very end, but I was broken by it. I was just going at it so hard and with so much passion and so much determination to make it work and then one day I just realized I couldn't anymore and I thought I was having a heart attack there in my um, beautiful kindergarten classroom and I went and saw my doctor and my doctor said "Mm, maybe not a heart attack maybe your heart is broken he did all the (sighs) tests and no my heart um was just broken not not having a heart attack it was nothing medical and Mm -hmm. I was burnt out in my bed for I'm going to say two weeks. I always say two weeks. It might have been longer. Time is a really bizarre concept for me when I think about that time. I was very broken and just couldn't Mm -hmm. get out of bed. Very uncharacteristic for me. Um, And then I I tried to resign from my position and um, the principal was having none of it. And he argued... um, with the department so that I could have leave and I was granted 12 months of leave without pay to consider whether I would hand in my resignation or not. Mm -hmm. I went through 12 months and I just realised that teaching had consumed my life and was compromising my health and was affecting my mental health and I spent that 12 months remembering who I was and um just realizing that actually you've put on the planet to have a life not just to work and teach and be in a classroom and be doing endless data and all of that so at the end of my 12 months of leave without pay I took my resignation letter in again and the principal didn't even try to stop me the principal just Mm -hmm. said I think I'll be next and took the letter from me and um and that was the end of my brilliant teaching career or so I thought uh I've always been a writer. And I um, submitted um, 
a pitch to the Griffith Review Journal um, about a system that is broken, that being the education system. Mm-hmm. And they accepted my pitch. I wrote the essay and, look, Katie, I thought, oh, look, you know, no one's going to read this essay. I was sort of mm-hmm. dithering about with it the night before it was due and, <laughs> you know, tinkering at the edges and wondering yeah. if I should change things about it. And anyway, I submitted it and to date it is one of their most read essays. I was shortlisted for a Walkley Award. I was invited wow. to the television program The Drum Suddenly I had become the person who had lifted the lid on um, something that a few people had a sense was problematic in our country, that is that the education system's not functioning as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that essay I was approached by a couple of publishers actually um, who said that they were interested in um, what I'm, what else I might have to say. And so um I took up a contract with Alan and Unwin Publishers and I wrote my memoir that was called Teacher and suddenly I became like (laughs) a weird rock star of the teaching community because (laughs) I was the teacher that has gone rogue and was telling it like it is and, yeah, really lifting the lid on what's happening in education and bringing people into the classroom and, and helping them understand why teachers are feeling the way they're feeling. And since then I've written yeah. another book called Dear Parents. I still um, speak in uh, the public domain. I was on the Today Show just this morning. You were. You education. Were. <laughs> so I'm that girl now. I'm the teacher gone rogue who tells it like it is and speaks about education and advocates mm-hmm. for teachers wherever I can. Yeah. Um, honestly, from one teacher to another, we could not be more thankful that you did take the decision to go rogue and speak out and lift mm. the lid on something that is absolutely breaking the hearts of teachers, not just in Australia, but across the world. Mm. So I guess my next question is how many teachers or how many education professionals contact you it must be daily to say thank you or to give their own experiences or just to reach out for some support. It's really, I don't collect data anymore. I refuse <laughs> to. I um, It's really hard for me to pin that down and give you an actual number, but it would be, th- yeah. it's thousands, it's thousands mm. and thousands. And I get messages from teachers, any teacher who today is listening to me and thinks, yes, I've messaged you, Gabby, and you never replied. I'm sorry, and please know I do read all your messages and I sort of offer up a little bit of, you know, teacher energy to each person that that I read. I do try to reply as often as I can. Sometimes I just have to tap, double tap and do a little heart emoji. You know, I've read it and I'm sending you love. But there's thousands of us and that's what I've opened up is this um, I've tried to create a space where teachers can place their voice and their feelings about education it always amazes me that people say to me I read your book teacher and it was like you had written my story and I sort of think how can that be you know like (laughs) you're you're a teacher in a remote community in WA and you're a secondary school teacher like how can we have any commonalities (laughs) and yet the struggle is real for all of us and it's very much the same 
It really is. I saw myself in your book and my mum read it and she saw herself. She's been on the podcast and she's since read your book and she said, this is exactly how we all feel. So it's not just her, it's all the teachers within her school and her previous school. And they're in the UK and my sister's read it and she's on the other side of the UK. She's in the Cotswolds. So it's, it's a real reflection of teaching in general, which I think is incredibly scary. Mm. Um, but since you wrote teacher, have you seen have you seen it have any impact in in education across the curriculum in the way teachers are treated at all? I often despair and think, no, it hasn't had any impact. And yet I have to be, I think, more honest and reflective because I do get invited, you know, like I said, I was on commercial television today talking about the work that teachers do. That's Mm. pretty significant. You know, I wasn't seeing that when I was teaching and, you know, it it has been four years since my book was published and I have to accept that anything to change in education is very slow. So Mm. I do think perhaps it is starting to have an impact, but I think it's not so much me, it is my story, but then there's the undeniable evidence, which is, you know, teachers leaving the profession, teachers agitating for change, unions speaking up, you know, the incredible groundswell of um, support I get from teachers and the way teachers are becoming more proactive in their profession and sort of um, responding to the workload and sort of saying, all right, well, I'm going to go part-time. It's all of that is starting to be reflected in a way that society is becoming more aware of it now, I think. Yes, I I would agree with you there. And I would also add that I can see just from talking to teachers in the podcast and listening to other amazing podcasts like Teacher Takeaways and Wine with Teacher, the courage that come that is coming out of the profession and enabling us to talk about the issues that have been bothering us for years and years and years. Mm. I think yes. that's quite a big change as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so I think I have to just take those things as a bit of a win, you know, like yeah. there you go. if that's happening, then that's a good that's a good step, you know, and I get these beautiful messages from people saying, um, you know, something wasn't right at my school or my boundaries weren't being respected. And I spoke up and they say things to me, teachers say things like, and Gabby, I imagined you were walking in with me. I imagined you were beside me. And so if I'm able to encourage teachers to um, make things better for themselves, then that's a great thing. That's incredible. That really is. That's absolutely amazing. Mm. Mm. What would you say to someone who is dithering about whether they are able to leave the profession? Maybe they've been teaching for 15, 20 years. Mm. They have fallen into a trap of, well, I've only got classroom skills. What else can I do? Mm. But I'm really unhappy in my job. What? How do you approach that kind of situation? Well, the first thing that I um, always remind a teacher who's in that situation the very first thing I always want to remind them is please remember it's not you it's the system like it's nothing Mm. to do with you the reason that you're having these feelings or you're not coping or you feel like a failure it's because of the system like it's designed to make us feel like that like I really try to get into a teacher's headspace and help them understand this is not it's really not even personal it's not about you it is the system that sets us up that way The next thing that I always want to tell teachers is that 
um, you know, as a teacher, you have an incredible skill set. Like we are incredible, the things that we can do. We can speak in front of audiences. We are highly organised. We're some of the most flexible people in the world, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, here comes a global pandemic. All right, now flip everything online. Yep, no problem. We're on it. Yep. Like just like yeah. that, you know, or even when it's in real life teaching, you know, oh, sorry, we forgot, you know, this group of footballers are coming in to talk to all the classes today. Oh, no worries. I'll shift that there, move that there. And away we go. Like we are so yeah. flexible. We're so adaptable. We are excellent communicators. We're excellent organisers. We show great leadership in so many various capacities I really mm. want teachers to know that you have uh, an incredible skill set. And I think that sometimes as teachers, because we have been so downtrodden and demoralised, we sort of start to buy into it. Oh, I'm just a teacher. You know, what else can I do? Yeah. What else can you do? My goodness, you're amazing. You keep 30-odd children alive every single day. What can't <laughs> you do is the question. Right. So I really think that, um, you know, when teachers are sort of dithering, as you say, you know, there's there's actually a fair bit of um, emotional and psychological work that needs to be done before they can mm. really confidently take a step away from teaching or in, even into a side hustle because um, we do tend to take on some of these really faulty narratives that are going around about education and teachers and and, and what we're capable of. And I just always want to challenge teachers on that and say, well, hang on, let's be objective about this. It's not you, it's the system. And let's look at what you do in a day. My goodness, what a skill set. What employer would not want that? So mm-hmm. I do always empathise with teachers, though. I can understand too because it's not necessarily the struggle that's happening for them isn't necessarily should I stay or should I go the struggle and the sadness comes from I never wanted it to end this way. Yeah. And that's where the real sadness and frustration and that's where sometimes the dithering comes because it's almost like I, I keep thinking often of it's like a romantic relationship, you know. Mm. We stood there, we we made vows, you know. We, <laughs> we, we, we study and we become a teacher and we go through those first few years of teaching and, oh, they're hard, you know. It's a baptism of fire and you get through that and you start to find your feet and you find your stride and you think I might be kind of good at this and you feel that connection with the kids and then suddenly you just realise that you're just doomed to fail, that try as you Mm. might, you're you're not going to have a work-life balance and, you know, you're always going to be asked to go in a different direction to the one that you know is the right thing. And then you're sort of suddenly thinking, well, this this was a commitment and a relationship I made for life. I thought I was going to be a career teacher for the rest of my yeah. life. So I think there's a lot to unpack when a teacher says, oh, I'm not sure whether I should stay or whether I should go in the profession. It's, it's, it's a huge decision. It's highly emotional. And, you know, no one goes and does a a three or a four-year degree to go, oh, well, I'll have a crack at this and and see how it goes, you know. We do it because we really want a profession, a career at the end of it. So there's a lot to unpack for teachers when when it comes to that, when it reaches that point of making a decision. I think the thing we hear a lot from teachers is, well, you don't do it for the money, you do it for the kids. Yes, Mm. and I think that makes it even more heartbreaking when you realise you have to leave because it's breaking you apart. Yes, and I think that sometimes that idea of a teacher's heart, it's 
sometimes weaponized back against us by people who are very well-meaning, you know, parents and sometimes mm. people in our family or colleagues, um, you know, but but don't you just do it because you love it so much. But, you know, you wouldn't stay in an abusive relationship. So why would you stay in a profession that's taking you away from your family and from the people that you love and it's compromising your mental health, you know, there reaches a point where you have to actually put your heart first in order to stay alive. Absolutely. There you go. Gabby says she's got the skills. It's (laughs) up to you guys. You've got it. Put yourself first. (laughs) Absolutely, teachers. You, You really matter. Teachers matter. The work we do matters. The skills we have matter. Like we are important people in this world and we need to switch around this crazy narrative that Mm. tells us that we're disposable and that we don't matter. Definitely, definitely. Well, if we can go back to the passion that Mm. obviously you have as a teacher. Now, you you were very passionate about reading and writing when you were Mm. at school um, and that's kind of continued as you've grown up and gone into teaching. But you were also quite passionate about um, drama as well. Is that right? Oh, well, (laughs) don't mind a bit of drama. I've always been, yes, I wanted to be like, um, you know, I, in high school I wanted to be the person that wrote the script and then starred in the show. You know, yeah. um, I'm sure primary school teachers will remember Erica Yerkin in the book Hating Alice and Ashley. I was probably a little bit like Erica Yerkin, you know, like I'll be the boss of this and I'll get this all sorted. But, yeah. yes, and look, even now my ideal job, if I could get any job in the world, it would be being a play school presenter. Um, and because I just think that plays into all of my teacher skills, you know, the storytelling and the, and the demonstrating and the yeah. dancing and being silly and singing songs, oh, and reading books and all of that. I, w- I would just love to do that. And I do think yeah. that um, probably something that has made me a good advocate for teachers is that I am able to tune into and remember my teacher self very much. I don't think I've ever shed my teacher self and and a teacher's personality does comprise an element of drama you know we put a particular person on each day we walk into that classroom it's somewhat of a stage when we go in and speak in front of those children and we Mm -hmm. we guide them through learning so I do channel a bit of that when I'm trying to advocate as a teacher I always try to present myself as a teacher and I suppose there's still sort of an element of that in me as well (laughs) Yes, I can feel that jazz hands element coming yes. through. I, I yes. think you should be on stage, to be honest. Oh, thank you very much. I've often done talks where um, teachers have come up to me afterwards and they say, look, Gab, if it do- if you don't make it on the public speaking circuit, you could always make it on the comedy stage. That was great. <laughs> like, oh, thank you very much. And I have discovered Instagram and making reels and stuff like that. Yeah. That's a nice little spot to put some, yeah. some little teacher humour and my quirky little take on things. And it's quite gorgeous to hear my girls um, I often will do stuff with my daughters and I say, you need to help me film this Instagram reel. And they're always excited. They're like, oh, what are we going to do? Um, but then when I tell them the plan, they'll often go, oh, are you sure, mum? And when you see an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old like want to take a, a check on your adult behaviour, you're sort of like, oh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm getting this wrong. An 11-year-old and a 13-year-old are telling me this is a bit well, 
at least you know that you've passed on those critical thinking skills. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Someone's being a parent here in this moment, so that's, that's good. <laughs> now, what do the girls think of teaching in general? Do you think they'll go into the industry? Have they got a different kind of view on it from watching your take on things? Livy, my eldest daughter, Livy, has been that child who is, she just, the moment she walked into school, I think it must have been what I was like. I got to see it because I was her teacher in her first year of school, but she just fell in love. Like she just, yeah, she just went home, you know, she just, she was at home. She just loved it. I could just see she loved it. And right down to the very first assembly. And, you know, I can remember her watching the big year six kids using the microphone and she trod over all the other kids that were sitting <laughs> down. You know how kids do that in assembly and they pick their way through the crowd yeah. and she's, galumping along in her slightly larger than everyone else's feet, you know, over to me. And she whispers in my ear and she would always call me Mrs. Stroud. But on that particular day, she said, Mum, who are those kids? And I said, oh, they're the school captains. And she went, right. You could see she just filed it away, you know, setting the plan. By the time I'm in year six, I shall be up there, you know. she's That's just live. She would just love to be a teacher. My other daughter, Sophie, she's very different kettle of fish and every parent out there will know that and every teacher too. How often do we teach a child and then the sibling comes up and you think, oh, I've got your measure and then then you're like, oh, no, I don't. Very different children, very different children. So Soph's very different. She um, does enjoy school. She loves learning, very creative and curious um, little person, but she quite loves thinking about what she might do when she grows up, you know, one minute we're a vet. The other day we watched an online auction, so she thinks maybe she'll be an auctioneer. She just goes wow. from one thing to another. She's very much, you know, wondering about where her place will be in the world. But, look, yeah. I had a real realisation the other day. I was in a conversation with Parsi Solberg, which just I can't yes. believe I just get to casually say that. But I, was. I know. I was just as excited when I yeah. saw that come up on your Instagram. Oh, my goodness. I w- and I got so nervous with him. But anyway. Did you? Oh, it was terrible. It was embarrassing. But I, I had a big realisation when I was with him, which was that this education system and the change that I really hope to see for teachers is probably probably a decade away, I'm speculating. Mm. And I really got heavy in my heart thinking about that because Livy is 13 and yeah. so she's going to be like me. She's going to finish uni, uh, finish school and just want to go straight to uni and yeah. I just think I don't know if there's going to be enough time for this system to have changed. And it's one thing yeah. for myself to have gone into it and be broken but it's another thing to watch my little one yeah. go into that. You know, I, it's a very complicated legacy handing yeah. on education to anyone or the the career of a teacher, handing that on to anyone, let alone handing it on to your own child. Definitely. Uh, Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's a lot in that and what, you know, what my kids make of teaching, what they think about it. I sort of keep saying to live, you know, things like she'll hear something interesting on the radio and I'll say, you could be a journalist, you know. (laughs) Like look at how that story just took your attention, you know. I'm I'm just trying to sway her into into something else, you know. And as she's gone into high school, she's, finding interest in other things, you know, and I'm yeah. saying, well, that, that's something maybe you could find out more about. Oh, STEM, goodness me, they're always looking for <laughs> women in STEM. What a great <laughs> career that would be. <laughs> poor kid. Oh, poor kid. Has she read Teacher? Yes. That, look, they both have. We listened to it okay. on an audio book once it was yeah. out as an audio book. And 
look, they just loved it. They love hearing yeah. um, stories of themselves. They're always yes. outraged that they're not invited to any of these events that I do. <laughs> they go, but, Mum, we're like the main characters in the book. Why don't we get yeah. invited? And I'm like, because you would totally steal my thunder. So yes, I- exactly. <laughs> This is my um, fee, not yours. Yes, Thank yes. you very much. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, yeah. But look, oh. they're incredibly proud of me, and that that is that means such a great deal to mm. me. You know, they really are supportive of me, and they watch me get very upset about this. You know, some things that really trigger me and really upset me, and they've watched me cry very sad tears about this and it's hard for them to understand because it's not like someone's died uh you know it's really no yeah. great loss I just chose a different you know I chose to step away from a job but you know I think gradually as these years are unfolding they're beginning to realize what what it really meant for mummy to be a teacher and how much that meant to me and how hard it was to to step away from it wow yeah that's a real um, that's a really big thing to think about, actually. And it just it's another indication of how much passion goes into teaching and how mm. important it is that people outside of education see that mm. and how important those careers are to us. Absolutely right. Um, now, I wonder if I can ask you a little bit, um, veering away from your teaching career as such, um, I wonder if I can ask you a little bit about your opinions on curriculum um now I could talk to you forever about this kind of stuff but Mm. I guess we'll start with something fairly simple um how do you see or how would you like to see the modern curriculum better reflect modern children and their needs if we're talking about how Mm. school needs to change in order Mm. to support our kids how would you like to see that change happen Mm. So this is something that has bothered me for a long time, like it bothered me when I was teaching and it bothers me now as I watch my own kids go through school and as I hear teachers talk, every teacher knows, every listener of this podcast will know, our current curriculum is so overcrowded, like there's just too much. Like So the curriculum needs massive stripping back. But when we do that, or if we were to do that, I think we need to... um, remember or think about again why we educate our children you know mm-hmm. we educate them because it's for the common good and they're going out into into a particular world and I really fear we're not preparing them well mm-hmm. for the world that they're going into our kids will yeah. be all right like it doesn't matter like these kids are going to be fine it doesn't matter but I just think we could, we should be doing better my little yeah. um Sophie has a mate in her class at school and he's got his own YouTube channel. And on the YouTube channel, he films himself playing, I think it's Minecraft. And yeah. he does this running commentary. And, you know, Soph watches it. She loves watching to see. She checks every few days if he's got a new episode and she's asked him to give her a shout out. And she says that in class he's a really quiet kid and, you know, she said you probably wouldn't know he was there, Mum. And yet I'm watching this kid going, well, he's a little entrepreneur. Like, yeah. That's incredible, the skill set of this young man in year five to get a YouTube channel up, to keep putting content on, like you would know, Katie, like creating content. Oh, my gosh, it's it's quite oh, a job, you know. It's constant. Kids, right? <laughs> and yet he continues to create content and he does it so well. You know, like when he mucks up in the game, he has a little funny little things come on the screen. 
I don't even know how he does it. Like if someone said to me, make a YouTube channel now, like that's cool, I've done that, I've got that, but make it of you gaming and then edit it and pop some things in. Well, I would have to learn how to do all that. I don't know how to do that. Yet this kid knows how to do it and I will bet you $2,000 he did not learn that at school, right? Like that kid has taught that himself, learnt that himself. And that's the world that these kids are in and we need to equip them for that and help them to understand that. And we're a changing world, you know, like we've got different ideas and understandings now about some really important things like consent and racism and, you know, some really big ticket items, um, our Indigenous history, and that needs to be reflected in our curriculum. And I think reflected deeply, not like add-ons and not like things that people just go, oh, we're from the group of people to promote water safety and we tack this onto your program, you know, but like deeply embedded. And I often go back to the work of Dylan William, who I believe is a researcher or an academic in education in the the UK, I think he comes from, and he Mm -hmm. always says we have to stop asking what works and ask what matters. And I really think that that would be the best question we could ask if we were to rewrite our curriculum is what matters Because what matters for, I think there needs to be some context around curriculum too, because what matters for kids here in the, um, in the seaside community that I live in, this small regional part of New South Wales, what matters for these kids and what they want to learn about is slightly different to the kids in, say, Alice Springs. And that's slightly different again to, say, kids in Adelaide. And so a teacher needs to have autonomy to make those decisions about content. The students need that autonomy so that they can say, hey, we're interested in this and we want to learn about this. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, we've got our fundamentals that need to be in there, the reading, the writing, the arithmetic, you know, the old three hours, not denying that any of that is important. But along with those fundamentals, we need to look at where these kids are going in the future and the skills that they need and where they are right now, the context that they're in. So, Mm. I mean, I just really think our our curriculum, it it probably, I don't know there's anything much worth saving in it, you know, like it's just so crowded that it probably needs to be rewritten from the ground up. I don't want to do it, though. Someone else can do it. (laughs) You don't want to do it, no. Hands down, forget me on that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Are we halfway there with all of this focus around individual learning programs and all of that? Are we kind of asking teachers to kind of do it but then trapping them within the structure of the curriculum and not giving them the autonomy to be able to do that properly? I I think the individual learning, it's such a difficult one because what, what I feel has happened, I, I I may not be popular for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I may or may <laughs> not have had a glass of red wine. So I'm going to say it. this. I think that part of the individual learning plans has come as a result of positioning parents as consumers. And so they mm. want to see where's my child, where's my child's program. Yeah. My child has this particular need, so where's their program? And I am not denying if a child has significant needs that require a specialised program, absolutely, please do not get me wrong on that. But if your child's a little bit behind the eight ball on reading and isn't quite there yet, they don't need an individualised program. What they need is to be in a classroom with a good teacher and let's be real, we're all good teachers. If we'd be given a break, we could really smash it out of the park. (laughs) Um, If you're in with a good teacher who knows what they're doing, They'll put the kids in groups. They'll offer different resources. 
they mm-hmm. will um, find different ways, multiple different ways of explaining various concepts. They'll revisit concepts as appropriate. They'll have they'll be given enough time and they'll mark the work and provide student feedback. Now, if you unpick all of those, that is individual learning. Like that, <laughs> that is what it is. You know, if I've got this little group of four or five kids and we're all reading at this ability level and I've grouped them together and I sit and I work with them and, and I've targeted the text that we're working on and I've pitched the activity precisely to them, that's fine. It, I don't believe that that should be written up as a whole other program or anything. It just needs to say groups. I've put them in ability yeah. groups based on this assessment. I really think that these individual learning programs that I know are taking up so much of teachers' time are actually just an offshoot of positioning parents as being consumers and schools as being businesses and the customer's always right and give the customer what they want and so we'll produce all this paperwork. And, do you know, the sad thing is we're writing all these programs and we're not delivering on them. Who's got the time? Once we get in in the classroom, you can't deliver 27 different programs and so you just do the best you can and because you're so fatigued and exhausted from writing individual learning plans you do some pretty crap teaching you know it's a vicious cycle and it's just it's terrible it's a classroom's yeah. not a place for a vicious cycle yeah it's terrible it's a terrible yeah. situation and I feel like you want to say it's bullshit and you can absolutely swear on this. It's fine. <laughs> Don't get me started. I did have the glass of wine. Look, I didn't bring you on here to be universally liked, Gabby. I brought you on here for a good rant. Good. <laughs> this is a great good. start. Yes. Um, so are, are schools like uh, the fabulous Linfield Learning Village or High Tech High over in um, the US or even the um, USC Ivine and Young Academy by the amazing Dr. Dre, are those guys getting education right? I don't know enough about those schools to actually comment and I don't know if you can 100% of the time always be getting education right. I know that sometimes I was just having epic fail after epic fail as I tried to get to know my class and I tried different things with them and, you know, working with children is very much a relationship and it takes time to develop and figure out what works. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that schools where leadership allows for autonomy and leadership allows for vulnerability I think they are places that you're going to find lots of good learning happening I think when principals feel brave enough to say actually I'm going to walk a different way and I'm going to not reply to that email I'm not going to jump through that hoop I'm going to keep my focus solely here on these teachers and on these students and do what's right for them I think that's when we see schools that are having some really amazing positive learning experiences Um, but I also understand why principals jump through the hoops you know we need the funding we need you know you need to be compliant there are so many reasons their hands are tied they're sort of forced in a corner it's it's really tricky for them but I mean for for entire schools to sort of go rogue and go we're going to go and we're going to do it this way it it takes um particular leadership and a great deal of courage you know like I always think I'd love to go to John Marsden's school Candlebark and see what what he's doing there and this is the school where on their website they say be warned if you enroll your kid here they're going to climb trees they're going to use a toaster to make their recess you know it's very much a real life 
school. But I mean, yeah. I have the privilege of knowing John. He he was the author of Tomorrow When the War Began, and you know, a real philanthropist, and and went on to start his own school. And he was a teacher, or he he remains a teacher. He's the principal. Um, and I have the privilege of knowing him, and and I can call him my friend. And I know that he, um, you know, he just has a blatant disregard for many of the emails and the <laughs> things that come his way. And you know, he just he'll say to his staff, "Look, this this has to be done. Um, if you get to it, good. If not, that's okay. We'll 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 fumble our way through. We'll figure it out." You know, like he's really yeah. got his staffs back and. You know, I'd like to work somewhere like that. I'd like to work somewhere where I know that that my principal has their eye on the students and their eye on their staff, and that that's that they're the people that they were trying to please the most, not not anyone yeah. else. Mm. So there we go. You heard it here first. The best education leaders put middle fingers up to bureaucracy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. And but it takes a lot of courage and. This will mm. make me unpopular too, but I do think that some principals are in the role of principal because they, they weren't great as a teacher. They didn't love it and yeah. they found it hard. And and like we were saying, I was saying earlier, you didn't become a teacher just to do it for five minutes and so they tried to find another spot where they fit better and so they're in leadership. And, you know, if you weren't really making it as a teacher and doing great, well, then how would you have the courage to know to, to put the finger up at, at those yeah. emails that come in and those demands and those data collections and, and things like that? So, I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to, to sound disparaging of, of some principles, but I just do know that that is true and that is the case. And it's a sad state of affairs because what those teachers needed was better guidance in the, in the classroom and helping them to become a good teacher so that then when they became a principal, they had the knowledge of what what it was to be a teacher. Mm. Would you ever consider going back into the classroom in leadership or into schools in leadership? I, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was going to give some eloquent answer, but no. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was often asked, you know, would you step up and be acting um, assistant principal or, you know, when people took leave and things like that. Uh, but no, I always answered no because I'm a foot soldier. I am a teacher. Being a teacher is what I want to do and it's what I'm good at and I think that um, there are many ways of being a leader and I know that I led often through my example and the way I acted and behaved within teams um, mm. on various staffs that I worked on and I know that some of my colleagues were incredible leaders to me even though we were, in inverted commas, just teachers. So I, I think it takes a particular kind of person to to be a good principal and I wouldn't want to do it unless I knew that I could be a really good principal and uh, I don't have that interest in any of the bureaucracy or the data collection or or any of that. I would give a pretty damn good school assembly, though, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah you would. Yeah. Get all that drama and the jazz hands yes, and I the would. singing, dancing. They'd show up for that. And I'll tell you something else I'd do if I ever was a principal was I would make sure I went into every single classroom every week and I would just sit with the kids and read a book or just do something, just go in and be with the cl with the classes because I think yeah. when principals stop doing that, they forget what it's all about, you know, yeah. and, and you've got to keep keep connected to the people that, that you're meant to be serving. 
Absolutely. I've had the fortune to interview some wonderful principals on this podcast and some of the episodes are out. Some of them are coming very soon, but um, I think the thing to remember is there are principals like that in Australia and in the UK and those teachers in their schools are very lucky to have um, principals that support their mental health and go and sit in the classrooms and share that kind of load. Yes, absolutely. There are some incredible principals out there. I've worked for some that just were absolute visionaries in how they led us as a staff And, and, and I think too you become biased once you've experienced good leadership. When when yeah. you then work for someone who's not a good leader, you sort of keep rolling your eyes and thinking, oh, this could be done so much better. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Mm, mm. Okay, I'm going to go on to a slightly different section of the podcast. I'm going to do some quick fire questions. How are you All feeling right. about quick fires? Yes, I will buzz in. Don't ask, okay. me, don't ask me anything very hard, though. It's Okay, well, the first one's going to be super easy. It's called Big Up a Bestie. So tell me some of the people that have inspired you over your career. Oh, lots of people have inspired me and I write about them in my book. And I I will always mention my beautiful friend Sophie, who I then named my daughter after. And she was just the quintessential amazing teacher. What, What I learned about teaching from watching her was just extraordinary and has stayed with me my whole life. I would love to give a shout out to my beautiful friend, Kel Harrison, who has Languages Roadshow. It's been really interesting for me working in this space outside of the classroom and trying to network and find my colleagues. And Kel is that person that I ring when I've had a bad day or when I've got good news. Mm -hmm. We celebrate um, our wins and our losses together. So um, that was a long answer to a quick question. Sorry. That's that's all right. My bad. Perfectly okay. Perfectly okay. Okay. Um, Next one, what feels illegal but isn't in schools or teaching? That is such a good question. Speaking your mind. Oh, fantastic Mm. answer. I love that. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do you wish you had more or less of in the classroom? Uh, well, I love that you're called um, not enough glue sticks. Um, <laughs> definitely glue sticks. Um, definitely time. But something that I was always longing for, and I think I'm creating it now, is I always wanted a place to put my feelings about my work. I wanted to know wow. that someone could hear me. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I always felt I needed. And so I feel I'm doing that now for teachers. I love that. And I just wanted to say we make such a big deal about having children's voices in their programs and in their work and everything, but we don't do much about having teachers' voices. That's That's a really interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. A space where teachers can be heard and their feelings are, are allowed. I think that that was something that I was really longing for and looking for, especially in my last few years. And um, I know now there's an urgent need for that. So that's what I try to give. Beautiful. What's been your proudest moment in your teaching career? Um, that's such a tricky question. Every time I taught a child to read, I felt mm. an incredible measure of pride. And uh, if I think for long enough about a child's face and how it looks at me, how they look at me when they've unlocked their first sentence or read their first book, I, I can be moved to tears. Teaching yeah. a child to read is a profound, deeply moving experience and I was always so, 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 so proud. Um, since leaving the classroom, getting my book published, you know, talking to Parsi, yeah. like my every day I'm proud of myself. I'm like, wow, look what I just did today. So, 
Yeah. Yes. And more teachers should be able to shout themselves out and say, hey, look at what I'm doing. I'm a fucking rock star. Absolutely. And that's part of what I say about this faulty narrative that we're carrying around as teachers. When I first left teaching, I probably wouldn't have thought I was proud of myself for anything. And I really felt like a failure. And now, as I just said, every day I think, yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Or that was a good achievement. Or, you know, that was a real win. So yeah, that part of that is flipping around that narrative that we have in our head. You can do it too, teachers. Be proud of yourselves. <laughs> yes, love it. Mm. Uh, okay, next one. Which theme or topic do you most enjoy teaching and what's your favourite resource to help you teach it? Oh, well, as I said, I love teaching reading and writing. And my mm-hmm. favourite, uh, writing, obviously, because I am a writer and, you know, when when I would get the students to write, I loved getting the large broadsheet of butcher's paper and pinning it up and I would yeah. write as well and just the kids would just be hanging to read my story at the end yeah. of the session as much as they were excited to share their own. So, you know, my most important resource would be, you know, a big sheet of paper and and a, and a marker and, you know, a group of kids that I could get engaged and just get them writing. And I just loved doing that. I loved it so, so much. It was so much fun mm-hmm. for me and the kids. Gorgeous. Oh, absolutely gorgeous. Um, now you talk a lot about your classroom cock-ups in teacher. We look, <laughs> we see some of your classroom, uh, your career mistakes perhaps yes. in dear parents as well. But what was the most memorable moment that might have been a bit of uh, a bit of a mistake? Uh, look, I really did detail them in, in my books. So, throwing a shoe, like throwing a child's <laughs> shoe. Yeah. And not just throwing, I mean, I didn't toss it. I want people to understand. I hurled the shoe like I was pitching a a baseball or something. I hurled the shoe out the door. Like, thank God no one was walking by because it would have knocked them out. Like with a, a rage that I didn't know was within me, I threw a child's shoe out the classroom door one day that was not that was not a great moment also when I called a whole class of kids assholes because they'd been incredibly um mean assholey yeah they'd been incredibly assholey that's a good word yes to to a a student in their class um but also I mean I have mortifying moments every day as much as I have um you know, proud moments. Uh, you know that 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 time I was on national TV, a national news program Q and A, and pretty much lost my shit and started crying. You know, because I was so devastated by talking about my teaching career and losing it. So, mm. I mean, not necessarily a cock up, cock up, but one of those mortifying moments where you just think, "Oh my yeah. gosh, really? Did that just happen?" <laughs> Yeah, but I think it does remind us that, you know, teachers are humans first and foremost. Mm -hmm. We can be superheroes, we can be saviours, we can be activists, we can be parents, we can be nurses if need to, but first and foremost, we are human and people need to appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the day that we're not able to be that way, well, then, it should just be all online learning and they just all mm. click onto a website and never engage with a teacher ever again. But, you yeah. know, th- that's why teachers will remain because that humanness and that connection and that relationship matters. Yeah, fantastic. Um, now this brings us to the final question, the mm-hmm. one that I ask every guest on the podcast and probably the one that I'm most excited to ask you, Gabs. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
if you were in charge for a day, mm-hmm. what would you change about education? So I would, if I was appointed Minister for Education, I would do myself mm-hmm. out of a job immediately and I would make <laughs> education bipartisan and put a whole bunch of stuff in so that no politician could ever get their grubby hands on it again yes. and cause us to be at their mercy every single election. So that is the mm-hmm. absolute very first thing that I would do. And then, you know, I would do lots and lots of other things, like I would do away with NAPLAN and, you know, I would really work on remoralizing teachers and, and things like that. But the most important, the most significant thing that I would do would, would be to take as much politics out of education as I can because it really has no place in there and it is what is bringing down our system and destroying our teachers. Wow. So speaking to all of the politicians that are currently listening, obviously, yes, what do you want them to know? Them, I'm sure. Thousands. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want them to know? What do you want to tell them? Uh, I would like politicians to understand that when they move on to a different portfolio, I'm still here teaching. I'm left with your fingerprints all over my career and I'm trying to turn myself inside out to achieve the brain fart that either won you the election or or moved you on to the next position that you rose up into. I don't think that politicians really understand the long-term impacts of their decision-making, and so I would love for them to understand that. And any politician that was listening, I would love for them to contact me or they could contact you, Katie, and say, I will do a week in a classroom. And I would just love for them to do that. And then, and then we could have a discussion. We could get out the big sheet of butcher's paper and some sticky notes and some markers and, yeah. and we could have a really very good and probably productive talk about what needs to change in education but not until they've done minimum of a week in a classroom. I don't think that's too much to ask, to ask the person that's in charge of the whole of education system to have some kind of education slash teaching experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Common sense, isn't it? Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. But I always just take comfort. You know, we recently have had an acting minister for education say some very um, hurtful things. Um, about teachers and I want to be outraged but then I just think don't give it too much airtime Gab because a few minutes from now I'm sure he'll be Minister for Roads and Transport or something else (laughs) so that's the only consolation in in this whole debacle is that they are soon Mm. moved on to to other things. Absolutely. Um, Gabby Stroud, you have been an absolute gem to have. I'm so, so honoured that you've made the time to come and chat to me. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for the energy and enthusiasm that you bring to your podcast and the way you advocate for teachers too. And you're putting their voices out there. Teacher voice needs a place and you're providing it. So thank you so much. A pleasure. Look, if you ever need an opening act when you get yourself on Broadway, hook me up. I can bring my own jazz hands to it. Absolutely. That snazzy <laughs> British accent. I'm on board. Oh, I'm right there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I love it. Well, there we go. It's a wrap officially on season one of Cold Coffee No Glue Sticks and I truly could not have asked for a better guest. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Gabby. If you haven't already, go and read her books, Teacher and Dear Parents. 
Uh, and of course, invite your local politician to spend a week in the classroom with you. Um, I can't wait to see how that turns out. I'll be back for season two later in the year, but get in touch if there's a teacher that you know that you think deserves their own episode. See you soon.